So, we come to a text this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably one of the most controversial and difficult for certain in the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's perhaps one of the most difficult in the, in the Gospel of Matthew as a whole. Um, so I say that because um, I just want to kind of prepare your minds for what is going to be uh, somewhat of a doctrinal message that is, um, remember in third grade when your teacher used to say, all right, kids, I want you to put on your think- thinking caps. Well, I'm not going to do that to you, but it's kind of like just, all right, this is one of those uh, messages that is is meant to inform my mind as to, as to how um, the Bible fits together. Um, to give you a sense of the kind of the controversial nature of this, I, I want to ask two uh, general questions, and, and, and then I want to make four quotations from, from Moses. Um, the question is this, if I was, if I was to take a, a microphone or I was to go interview people out in the community who profess to be Christians, and I was to ask the question, this is a general first broad question, um, do believers, do followers of Jesus, do Christians need to obey the Bible? I think 95% of Christians would say, yeah, we need to obey the Bible. Some free grace guys might um, say otherwise. But I think most people say, yeah, we need to obey the Bible. Now, if I was to give that um, question a bit more of a, of a point to it and to ask the follow-up question of, let's just call them garden variety Christians out there. Um, should we obey the Ten Commandments? Should we obey the Ten Commandments? I think most garden variety Christians would say, yes, we're supposed to obey the Ten Commandments. Now, how, how would you answer those two questions for yourself? I just want you to think about it. Hopefully you have some semblance of an answer, how you'd answer this. If you've been a part of Parkway for a while, then you probably would say yes with lots of qualifications. So now let me quote to you four commands from Moses in the Old Testament. One's part of the Ten Commandments. If you said, yes, we're supposed to keep the Ten Commandments, then the question comes up as to what about the fourth one? Where Moses, I should say God, through the prophet Moses, commands his people, this is, this is from God, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. My guess is some of you did yard work yesterday. Maybe you opened up your laptop and you did, you did office work. Right here, very clearly, the Lord says we are supposed to take Saturday off. And there's an implication here that we're supposed to work a six-day work week. Now, how many of us can actually say that? I, I full-on did not do any work yesterday. That's what's commanded. And this is part of the Ten Commandments. The question is, why... Not this one. On what basis would we not keep this one when it's part of the ten? Is it just, well, I don't like the fourth one, but I like the other nine? There, it's, it's a, it really is an important question because as a follower of Jesus, I want to know how I'm supposed to live as an expression of my love and trust in the Lord. And if he wants me to, to take Saturday off, well, then I, by nature of my, my faith in, in his word, I... I would want to do that. So it's a really important question when it, when it comes right down to it. Like, am I supposed to keep the Sabbath? And on what basis am I going to differentiate between which ones I, 
obey and which ones I don't? Is it just like pick and choose? Or here's another one. Leviticus 11:12. everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is debatable to you, or it can be detestable to you. That is, this is uh, in the middle of dietary law. It's like if it doesn't have fins, doesn't have scales, you can't eat it. It's detestable. It's an abomination, which rules out lobster, my favorite Dungeness crab, shrimp, oysters on the half shell, as my wife detests, clams, and mussels. If we obey this one, red lobster goes out of business and so does the dead fish. <laughs> now, you know, we chuckle at it, but okay, so why not this one? Like, as a, as a Christian, can, can you explain the rationale as to why you wouldn't keep the Sabbath or why you would eat crab? Or here's another one. Parents love this one. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. Now, as much as a set of parents may wish to quote this to their teenagers who want a sleeve up their arm, on what basis are you going to press this one and not the command about shellfish or the Sabbath? Is it just, well, I don't like tattoos, so I'm going to go to this one and choose it because of my preference and my, I just don't like them. There'd be a lot of people who'd be in trouble here today in violation of this. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jeannie. <laughs> one last one. Okay. It's, again, I picked semi-comical ones just because of our culture. But the question is a serious one. On what basis are we going to decide which are commands we're supposed to keep, which are not. Last one. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If we obeyed this one, there would be far less teenagers in Fairfield, <laughs> right? So again, the question is, like, what is the basis for understanding properly what we're supposed to obey and what we're not supposed to obey? It's, it's, a, it's, it's a huge question, and I honestly don't think there are a lot of Christians who know how to answer that question. Um, you've just kind of maybe grown up in a church culture where you just kind of, where you just learn almost by osmosis that shellfish is okay, it's okay to get tattoos, um, but it's not okay to sleep with somebody else's wife. Like, you just kind of like inherit it. And how would you answer the question if someone asked you directly? I was in England, and this lady came up to me. I... I still think of her to this day as the rabid Seventh-day Adventist lady. And she said to me, she says, she found out I was going to Bible college. I was trying to get my head around the Bible and, and understand it, just beginning. And she said, do you eat bacon? Do you eat sausage with pork in it? And I said, well, y yeah. I was, every year camping, we eat bacon and we eat sausage. And she goes, that's an abomination to the Lord. She said it just like that. just got in my face. And I was just like a deer in the headlights, like, oh, how do I, I didn't know how to answer Honestly, she cited a verse. How is it you would answer? Like, could you give a credible, biblically defensible reason as to why some and not others? It is, really is an important question. I've seen people, Christians, both new and old, tripped up by it, confused by it, and some have just derailed because of it. So, listen, this morning we're going to look at this brief text of Jesus that touches on the subject, and he is going to uh, teach us how the Old Testament relates to himself, that is, 
Old Testament and Jesus, and secondly, in verses 19 and 20, how the Old Testament relates to the Christian or the disciple. Now, I'm just going to tell you my two main aims this morning. I hope by the time that I'm done, because I only have a short time, that you're actually equipped to be able to think through why don't I keep the Sabbath and why do I stay faithful in my marriage? that you would be able to have the tools necessary to answer that question for yourself. And secondly, just to reinforce the importance of, here it comes, of obedience. So, part one, how does the Old Testament relate to Jesus? That's question number one. This is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, we are going to zero in on the word fulfill in a couple of seconds. But before we do, because that's really um, where everything turns on this definition of this word fulfill. But before we get there, I want to just draw your attention to Jesus' clarification and his own convictions. The clarification is he's telling his disciples, like, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And there were people in Jesus' day who thought that he was antinomian. That is that he was somehow against the Old Testament, specifically as it relates to the Sabbath. And he said some rather negative things about the temple, which weren't necessarily negative about the temple itself, but how the Jewish people worshipped it. So he makes the clarification, do not think that I have come to abolish. It's a really, really strong word in the original. They, it was used to talk about the demolition of temples, buildings, like bring them to the ground, like blasting with dynamite and watching them come down. He says, make no mistake about it, I have not come to demolish. And then he says, the law or the prophets. And that is a way, just so you know, a shorthand for the entire Old Testament, the whole thing. Not just law, not just prophets, but law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament. So what he's saying, just to clarify his clarification, he says, I have not come to demolish the Old Testament. That's his clarification. And to cement that into the ground, he gives his conviction about the Old Testament. That's verse 18. He says, for truly, this is emphatic, I wholeheartedly believe this to be the reality For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He is stating in no uncertain terms that he has the absolute highest faith in the infallibility, that means it will never fail, of his Old Testament. All the way down, he says, to an iota, which is like the Greek letter I, which probably corresponds in his mind to the Hebrew letter Yod, which looks like an apostrophe, a little tiny letter, down to the dot, like we have a little dot on an I. It's just a little swish that differentiates one letter from another. In our uh, English, I was thinking of O versus Q. Like, the only difference is one has a little tiny tail. What he's saying is, truly, 
I fully, completely believe that the entire Old Testament, not just the 39 books and not just the individual books and prophets, but the paragraphs, the sentences, the words, even the little tale on cue will be fulfilled. Nothing's going to happen without that coming to fruition. He has, Jesus has the absolute highest regard for his Father's word. No part of it will fail. And he lives by that. I mean, when he does battle with the devil, if you could call it that, he constantly makes reference to the scriptures, including the one that says, thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He, he was a living embodiment of living by the very words of his Bible. His Old Testament was his Bible, and he knew it was God's infallible, unfailing word. He quoted it, he argued with it, not against it, but with it. He was passionately committed to fulfilling it. So he's saying, in no uncertain terms, absolutely not, I am fully and completely convinced that my Bible, in every part down to the smallest swish of a pen, is infallible. That's his Bible. How many Christians do you know today that have that, that much conviction about their Bible? Like, I believe that God's word will never fail. Not just the paragraphs, not just the sentences, but down to the letters themselves. This is Jesus' view of scripture. And one of the reasons I believe Christians should have such a high view of the infallibility of the Bible itself is because Jesus did. So that's his conviction. So he's clarified, I've, I, I haven't come to demolish the Old Testament. Quite to the contrary, I believe that down to the smallest detail, God is going to fulfill what he has spoken. Which brings us to that central word, fulfill. He says, I, I haven't come to demolish, but, and here's his purpose. He said, I've come into this world with the aim, the central aim of fulfilling the law and the prophets. How are we supposed to, what are we supposed to make of that word? There's a number of different variations of interpretation based upon how you take that word. And, and I honestly don't have time to tell you all of the different interpretations, but I will tell you the one that persuades me. That word translated fulfill occurs 16 times in the gospel of Matthew, 16. Two of those 16, it, 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 it talks with reference to filling something up, like filling up a net with fish. Filled up the net. Another one filling up the measure of sin, Matthew 23. Which leaves 14 occurrences of this word translated fulfill. In every instance, and I'll leave this one out, so 13 other instances, it's always tied to the word of a prophet. That is, a prophetic prediction. For example, Matthew chapter 1 Verse 23, quotes Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, saying that um, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Jesus is the final realization of that prophetic prediction. He's the one who, that it speaks of, and, and as he's born of a virgin, and God with us, called Emmanuel, he, he fulfills it. And that's, that's how it's used the other 13 times as a fulfillment of a prophetic word. 
which inclines me to believe he hasn't changed the way he uses the word here because he's talking about laws and prophets. So what he's talking about is he's saying, listen, I, I'm going to expand on this. How does the Old Testament relate to me? I have come to fulfill it, and not just the pieces of it, but all of it. Like, I am the subject to which it points. I am the final realization of all God's working in promises and images and pictures and shadows, everything. I'm the center of it. Now, at Christmas time and, and Easter, we often focus on those specific, explicit predictions of Jesus, like... Um, now unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And that is a very explicit prediction that is fulfilled only in one person, namely Jesus Christ. It's an explicit one. But if we listed all of those explicit predictions, there would be a, a number, but it's certainly not the whole Old Testament. So what does he mean? I am the fulfillment of it. Everything in the Old Testament has Jesus at its, as its ultimate culmination, as its fulfillment. Its institutions, for example. God told people to build a temple with stones, and they did. A temple is what? It's a place where holy God meets sinful man. Jesus comes and he says, destroy this temple, referring to himself, and I will rebuild it in three days. What the temple pointed to, this place of stone, was Jesus, who is the capital T temple where God would forever meet with his people. This Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, mediators between God and man who had to give, do sacrifices all the time, they were a shadow of the substance, namely that Jesus, the high priest, who would offer once for all his own sacrifice um, by which we would be united and reconciled to God. He is the capital P priest. He is the capital S sacrifice. So it's institutions point to him. It's like I fulfill the institutions that God himself set up in the beginning as, as a prophetic picture. But it's not just those institutions. It's even the characters of the Old Testament. Adam, Moses, David, for example. Adam, the first man who was meant as the first king to subdue the earth, which he failed miserably at, and he is a shadow of the true and last Adam, Jesus Christ, Paul would say, who didn't fail where Adam failed, to subdue the earth through his gospel and through his return. Moses, the great mediator between God and man, the, the one who reveals the whole old covenant, Jesus is now the capital our revealer, he's the word made flesh in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That is, he is God's spoken revelation. He is the, the prophet, the revelation of God. Or you take King David, fallen man, but just a, a shadowy image of the true king to come who would give his life on a cross and rise from the dead and will one day reign over the earth. His characters themselves all point to him. So it's institutions and explicit predictions. It's its characters. The Sabbath, what about that one? When Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this in a very well-quoted verse. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, and what's the next word? Rest. Sabbath? 
rest. He goes on to talk about being gentle and humble of heart and his yoke is easy and talks about giving them, again, rest. And immediately following that statement are a couple of miracles that have to do with the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying and what Matthew's saying and organizing it that way is that like, Jesus is the fulfillment even of the Sabbath. I mean, in this world where we're burdened down by sin and burdened down by the vanity of vanities, he's saying, I, like, I'm actually the Sabbath rest. I, I fulfilled that too. Or one final one, even the, the people of Israel, the nation is, 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 is just the shadow of, of the one to come. And, and Matthew, when he put together his gospel, he, if you pay attention, it's, it's really clear. For example, this is a pattern. In Genesis, the people of Israel go down into Egypt to protect them from starvation. And then God calls them up through Moses. This is his son, Israel. Jesus, same thing. To get away from Herod, God says, leave, go down to Egypt with your toddler named Jesus. And later on, after the threat had been taken care of or Herod died, God calls him up and a prophetic word happens at that moment. I believe it's from Hosea. It says, out of Egypt I've called my son. Jesus is the true son. He is the, the true Israel. And even his temptation, the 40 days, Israel wandered for 40 years in the desert being tested and they miserably failed and yet Jesus is taken out into the wilderness for 40 days. I might have said days, 40 years for Israel, 40 days for Jesus hasn't drank or ate anything and he's tempted and he, he passes with flying colors. The, the true son, the true Israelites. What I want you to see, and I know some of you know most of this, like Jesus is the central figure of it all. He is the culminating fulfillment of all that God said, spoke, and put in motion in the Old Testament. That ought to raise him from just another figure to, oh my gosh, he's like the central subject of the entire Old Testament, which he is. So he fulfills it all. Now here's the thing. In fulfilling it, through his life, through his teaching, through his death, through his resurrection... He changes the state of affairs. He just, he changes the state of affairs. I want you to keep that in your head. The state of affairs are changed. How? how? Well, on a number of, in a number of ways. I mean, obviously, if he is the true temple, the true priest, the true sacrifice, then those things become obsolete once he's come. We don't need to sacrifice. Why? Because Jesus did the once for all sacrifice. So those, those requirements, those institutions no longer are directly valid to us because they've been fulfilled. A new state of affairs. A new state of affairs that will cause much of the Old Testament not to have direct application because he is the fulfiller of it. And here the, the church fathers have been helpful in, 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 in categorizing things for us to kind of understand. The reformers followed this. It goes back to the time of Aquinas and it's not without its problems. But basically, they were able to categorize the Old Testament into three basic categories of ceremonial, civil, and moral law. 
the ceremonial, they would say, having to do with ritual cleansing and, and separation and purity and temples and all that stuff, say obviously that is no longer in play because Jesus fulfilled it and therefore it's become obsolete. It's still helpful in understanding the nature of the atonement, going back and going, wow, blood. God was teaching them all the way back there that someone had to die for us to live. So it's, it still points and, and expounds and explains things about the cross of Jesus, still valuable. They would say that is set aside, That's that, that part, not set aside, it has been fulfilled, and therefore it's a new state of affairs, which is why they won't sacrifice goats. And then there's the, the civil law. Israel was a, was a nation state, a theocratic nation state with a political entity over a geographical area. And as such, there were certain laws that had to do with how they operated civilly. It's a new state of affairs when Christ comes because now he opens the doors not to Jewish people but also to, to the nations. And what binds them together isn't a, a civil law. What binds them together is his blood. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation who were scattered around, around the world as exiles who are now called to live under the authority of even pagan governments, Romans 13. See, so the, 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 the state of affairs has changed. So the church fathers would argue that second Civil law is no longer directly applicable either, although some theonomists would disagree with that. But then there's the third category, and that is the moral law of God that is eternal and remains. Now, I'll just be really honest with you. It's still a bit of a problem because it's like the Old Testament doesn't lay out that way. You have this ceremonial and civil and moral all tied together, tangled up, and it's hard to pull it all apart. We've seen it in the Ten Commandments. You got the Sabbath wedged in between these nine other ones that have to do with loving God and loving your neighbor. So it's hard to pull it apart. However, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of his authorized messengers, the apostles, help us with that. They tell us that Jesus has declared all foods clean. Mark 7, Acts 11, which is part of, again, the new state of affairs. We're told in Romans 14 that some people are going to treat one day important, another people a different day, just in these debatable matters, let there be grace and let there be love. In other words, he would say, I think, he would say that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. Now, is it in principle good to take a day off? Absolutely. But not as a legal requirement for your relationship with the Lord. So it's the, if you will, it's the moral law of God which is summed up, right, in a, in a command to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would say, and Paul would affirm, and the rest of the writers would say, that sums up the entire Old Testament moral law. And you, when you begin to love people, you are actually living out what God intended in his law. Now, that's... I hope just a way for you to process conceptually the question, why don't I keep the Sabbath? I'll tell you why I don't as, a, as, a, as an Old Testament obligation. Because I believe Jesus is my Sabbath. Because he has fulfilled. That's that important word. And having those three categories is helpful to know this has been fulfilled. This has been fulfilled, a new state of affairs. And yet God still has. We have a moral responsibility to love him in the way that the New Testament lays out and to love each other and even our enemies. So having said that, switch to the second question. How does it relate to us? 
He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are some pretty strong words. When he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, again, I have in my head processing the Old Testament through Jesus as the fulfiller and the filter. He's speaking of the moral law of God. The least of these. Whoever relaxes them will be called least in the kingdom. And whoever, you know, keeps them and teaches them will be called great. Both people in verse 19, like, get in the kingdom but there's definitely a difference based upon whether they relax it or not. Now, there is a, a brand of, of Christianity out there that would, that would say something like this. Dude. Hey, man, we're, we're under grace now. We're not under law, so we kind of get to do what we want now. Right? And it just kind of leads to a, uh, a relaxed lack of passion, lack, lack of zealousness for actually submitting in obedience to the Lord kind of a state. And nothing could be further than the truth according to these words of Jesus. Not to, not to relax. He's going to go on after verse 20 to bring up some of the Ten Commandments, the moral law, and he's going to intensify and press them down in a way that the Old Testament never fully did. That you know what? It's not just about committing the act of murder. It's actually in your heart not to hate. It's not just about saying no to physical adultery. It's about saying no to your own lusts. Like he's taking it in a direction that's intense. More intense even than Moses. So he's pressing the importance for disciples of it's of obedience to the moral law of God. He's not relaxing it at all. He's intensifying it. Which I think, again, flies in the face of dude. And then he presses it one step further and he says, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees who were meticulous in outward conformity to the moral law of God and to the ceremonial law of God and to the um, civil law of God, unless it's greater, you will not enter at all. He puts an eternal weight on this. The righteousness of God's people, of his disciples, of Christians, he says, must exceed that of the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And that means there's going to be a, a huge difference between a disciple and a Pharisee. A Pharisee used the, the, the law of God and used the, the Jewish religion as a means of exalting himself as a way of looking down on other people and basically saving his own skin, of being seen by people and applauded as being religious. That is, it never was really about a relationship with God or with other people. It was about themselves. The disciple's going to be different. Discipleship with Jesus always starts from the inside. It starts from the inside when the spirit of the living God calls you to life. 
and gives birth to something new in here. The righteousness that the disciples of Jesus will have will originate not with him or herself. It will originate with God himself. That is to say, to put it in the context, the disciple is first and foremost someone who knows he's poor in spirit, who knows he doesn't have what it takes. He doesn't have the moral rectitude. He doesn't have the worthiness to be actually be able to be in relationship with God, and he acknowledges that. And out of that, he hungers and thirsts for true righteousness, so the Beatitudes teach us. But it's a righteousness that only God can give, and there's, there's two primary ways that he gives it to us. One is by way of declaration, and the other is by way of, of transformation. This wonderful, and I'm going to use theological words too here, the wonderful doctrine of justification teaches us that God can declare an ugly sinner perfect and righteous, not because they're perfect and righteous, but because Christ was perfectly and he sees us through the lens of Jesus. And that is called justification. That's how a sinner can sing. Because we know that God has granted to us this declared righteousness. That's justification. But then there's, he doesn't leave us simply in a state of, I declare you righteous. He gives us new birth. He gives us his spirit. And he begins the process of making us more righteous from the inside out through his spirit. And if the entire, if the entire law and prophets is summed up, the morality of it, in the simple command to love, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And if the very first fruit of the Spirit is love, then this is a righteousness that God declares and puts in us. And it's our responsibility as, as believers to believe it, to begin to live it, and to see the importance of obedience as an expression, not as the cause, but the expression of my relationship with God. It's like he has taken away my shame. He's taken away my guilt. He's loved me that much, so why wouldn't I want to, in response to that much secure love, want to serve my God and my Savior with my whole life, from my heart? That's discipleship. Is the desire, because that obedience is an expression of your love. It's an expression that you actually trust him, a desire to not relax, but to love God with your life, down to the particulars, like Jesus would say, of, of your enemies and how you deal with life sexually and how you use your words and how you treat other people who injure you. You're going to retaliate eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's going to get into this, the deep, deep depth of it. But this is Discipleship 101, is simple obedience of faith. So here you have these two things, my two aims. I want, would like you to be able to understand why not some things but other things, how Jesus relates to the Old Testament, and also now how we are supposed to relate and the importance of simple obedience that comes from faith. How did those hit you? Is that you? Is, if you kind of accepted a very loose form of Christianity? Because, I mean, this, these are right out of the words of our Savior. This is right out of the words of our King. And you know, when he gives the final um, Great Commission, what he says? Go, 
make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. It's one of the chief expressions of discipleship is that in love and faith, we simply surrender ourselves in obedience to him. And I hope that's where you're headed this morning. Father, thank you for your word. I know that it's sharp, it pierces like a sword, and I pray that we would, as a people, humble yourself, uh, humble ourselves before it and before you and allow you to determine truth, not us, um, and allow us the grace to humble ourselves before it. And if repentance is needed, then let it be repentance. If it's just encouragement, let it be encouragement. But Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would um, continue to take these truths and um, let them probe and um, question our souls so that we might truly be disciples who honor you in all that we do in his name. Amen.